This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Mount Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hello and welcome to Savor, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about the semi-fictional foods of Little House. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And this was such a fun one for me because I know nothing about it. We will talk about more um, because this is an interview episode. Yes, yes. We got to do an interview with, uh, okay, so so a couple of our coworkers just launched a show, a podcast called Wilder, um, Mm -hmm. which is about Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of the Little House series. And uh, and they go on this whole journey. Um, and so, so yeah, so we're going to have a, a, an interview with with their producer, Emily Marinoff, and uh, the host, Glennis McNichol, in a little bit here, uh, which was a terrific conversation and really went places that I did not, did not expect to go. Me either. And I mean, even as someone who didn't really know much about this at all, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and Glennis uh, commented in it. She said that she wished we had like video. There's a way to translate my facial expressions as I was like learning. Yeah. <laughs> <into audio. laughs> yeah. Um, it, and, and, and I say this having a lot of experience with mm-hmm. this series because I read and reread the books a lot. It had to have been dozens of times when I was a child. Like, this is very much something that I grew up with. And, uh, you know, rereading, I reread the first book in preparation for doing this episode. And, like, I remembered a lot of the wording verbatim <laughs> is how wow. often I read those books. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's really we- weird to revisit as an adult, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, which we definitely talk about a lot mm-hmm. in the interview, but um, I have friends who love it for sure. And I, this, uh, to be fully transparent, I kind of just got to sit back on this one because um, <laughs> hey. uh, I <laughs> didn't know anything about it. And then the interview, which is fantastic, was so thorough. 
And I was like, all right, all right, all right. And then huh. you came in and contributed a bunch more. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, uh, yeah. we, we, we have a weird division of labor around here. It all comes back <laughs> around in different ways. It does. It does. But I am very excited about this one. And I know a lot of you listeners have written in about this. So. Yeah. Yeah. But for those listeners who are like me, no idea. <laughs> I guess that brings us to our question. Little House. What is it? Well, um, the Little House series is a set of books and various media adapted from them, um, written by Laura Ingalls Wilder as autobiographical fiction depicting events from her childhood through her starting her own family in the American West uh, and or Midwest in like the 1870s through the 1890s. The main series consists of nine children's novels. Uh, uh, Wilder wrote and published the first eight in 1932 through 1943, and the last one was published after her death. Um, plus then a TV show adapted from them that ran from 1974 through 1983. Uh, they're, they're like warm, family-oriented slice-of-life stories about growing up as a homesteader out in the country and in very small towns um, about being poor, but creating richness for yourself and your family through like hard work and simple pleasures, um, often those pleasures being food. It's, uh, it, it's hard times seen through rose-colored glasses, and that is a pun because her daughter, whose name was Rose, had a large impact on the series. More about that in the interview portion. Um, but yeah, uh, it's like comforting and homey and polished to an absolute gloss um, and also very ugly sometimes um, and really blind to greater context. Um, so it is just the most dang American thing I can possibly think of. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. I, I was picking up on that vibe a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Uh, uh, Wilder was born in 1867 and lived through 1957. Um, and, like, uh, this is a phrase that we say a lot sardonically around here, but earnestly in this case, what a time to be alive. Like, <laughs> Just, you know, like she grew up going f around the prairie in covered wagons and she took an airplane to go to, to, to like tour the world as an author as before she, before her death. Like, wow, like wild. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> the books, I'm pretty sure I used that pun in the interview too. I'm so sorry. Anyway, uh, so right. The, the books do give super detailed descriptions of meals and of treats, which is kind of why we're talking about it here, um, but but also of the, the sheer labor that went into getting supplies, most often by hunting and gathering and farming and then producing what you need by hand, sometimes less often by like traveling to buy something or ordering something through like a very distant and still developing supply chain. And at many points, especially reading this as an adult, um, the books are more about hunger than they really are about food, about um, crops failing, like literal plagues of grasshoppers, um, about getting snowed in. Uh, for example, in the book The Long Winter, they're just absolutely stuck with no hope of supplies coming. Um, like they have to eat their their seed wheat, like they're not going to have anything to plant the next year, but they are literally starving alone in this house. Um, Laura, then a teenager, is sort of doing the math. And, and in the book, she says, 
half a bushel of wheat they could grind to make flour, and there were the few potatoes, but nothing more to eat until the train came. The wheat and the potatoes would never be enough. Um, yeah, right? Hoofda. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, like what depictions of food that there is in the books are glorious. Um, and amidst the series' popularity, uh, a couple of cookbooks have been published. Um, the Little House Cookbook, was first published in 1979, right when the show was super popular. Um, It was written by Barbara Walker and illustrated by Garth Williams, who illustrated a a version of the book series as well. Walker wrote in an interview, um, food looms large in this pioneer chronicle because there was rarely enough of it. The real grown-up Laura's memory for daily fare and holiday feasts says more about her eagerness for meals, her longing for enough to eat, than it does about her interest in cooking. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. intense. Right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, another cookbook called The Laura Ingalls Wilder Country Cookbook was published in 1997. Um, that one was written by one William Anderson, and it's, and it's based on the scrapbook that Wilder compiled and cooked from herself, like using recipes from magazines and newspapers along with her own memory of family recipes. Um Anderson uh, said about it, uh, recipes were pasted over pages of a cardboard-covered invoice book used by her husband, Almanzo, when he was a fuel oil delivery man in the early 1900s. Internal evidence suggests that the bulk of the cookbook was assembled by Laura during the 1930s and 40s, Um, so when she was in the midst of writing the series. Mm -hmm. And it does include a recipe for gingerbread, which became kind of iconic as Wilder rose to celebrity as an author in the 40s and 50s and was asked to to share some favorite recipes. That's one that really often comes up. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll we'll talk about this a bunch in the interview, but but I wanted to put here in this intro that like part of why the family struggled so much was that. After, you know, this this is all happening, like, right after the Civil War. And during that time, the American government and a number of private interests were encouraging colonists to go settle the West um, as part of, like, this grand idea of manifest destiny and also the growth of industry and also to push Native Americans out. Um, But like a lot of the land was not good for settling the way that white people were trying to settle it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Laura's own biographer later wrote... Homesteaders could not succeed no matter how hard they worked. They were bound to fail. The land had limits, and no solitary, undercapitalized farmer could ever hope to overcome them. Also, in 2018, amidst a growing conversation about Laura's portrayal of Native Americans and other non-white groups in the books, um, the American Library Association's Association for Library Service to Children changed, changed the name of their book award from the Laura Ingalls Wilder prize or, oh gosh, I forget. I'm I'm sorry. It had her name in the title and now it does not because, yeah, there was rightfully so growing conversation about, um, about like the appropriateness of these books to give to children without any further comment. Right. Um, Because, yeah, it does depict very real sentiments that people very really held and sometimes do still hold. Um, but, you know, like, just putting that out there without commenting on it is maybe not maybe not the best idea. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that being said, it is, it, it was really remarkable to me reading the first book and going through some other passages 
After having worked on this podcast for a few years, like the sheer number of historical touch points that come up in Laura's like everyday narrative, um, they make maple syrup. Um, they talk about needing to slaughter a calf in order to make cheese because at that point you didn't have mass-produced rennet. You didn't have vegetable or you didn't have microbial grown rennet substitutions. So you wanted to make cheese, you had to slaughter a calf. Um, they talk about eating squeaky curds. They talk about graham flour bread. At one point, they make hard candy uh, by by painting sugar into the snow and then taking, I'm like, sugar painting, what? Like, I never thought that that would come up. I didn't remember. <laughs> um, and and yeah, uh, you know, like the, the, the food that's talked about, um, you know, she, she describes her father hunting deer and bears and buffalo and fish. Um, and breaking breaking down the venison, um, the family raises pigs sometimes. They have cows for dairy and chickens for eggs and, and for meat. You know, there's corn and whole wheat and oats and maple sugar and honey. Um, if you can get it away from a bear, uh, you know, there's all kinds of wild berries and a garden with squash and carrots and cabbages, potatoes, beets. They go uh, gathering for walnuts and, and hazelnuts in the woods. On special occasions, like when company comes, they might put store sugar out on the table for your tea um, or oh. get store-bought candy, um, like like pretty sticks made of pulled sugar, um, and once a candy heart that was too pretty to ever eat. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. I saw people, that came up in a lot of examples when <laughs> I was looking this up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they make baked goods of all kinds. There's bread and pies, sweet and savory pies. Um Vanity cakes come up in the first book, which are like um, like an egg and flour dough deep fried in lard until they ballooned out into a sort of crunchy puff, um, sort of like an unsweetened donut. One time she describes making a rhubarb pie and forgetting to put in the sugar. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tart. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I, I think in, in the interview I uh, mistakenly said that she put in salt instead of sugar. I think she just forgot to put in the sugar. Anyway. It's been more than 20 years since I've read that book, and I it is stuck in my brain. Like, that is just... Yeah. It's so weird. <laughs> I do that, too. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know why I was so convinced of this, and it still trips me up. Yeah. But that's how it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and okay, I wanted to read a couple passages just, you know, for anyone who, like Annie, you know, might not have any experience with the actual verbiage from the books. Uh and so the first one, <laughs> the first one is about, um, it, it's, it's from the first book from, uh, from, from Little House in the Big Woods, and they slaughter their yearly pig. And this is a detail that is stuck in everyone's mind. Um, and so, okay, uh, <laughs> here we go. Uh, Paw was blowing up the bladder. It made a little white balloon, and he tied the end tight with a string and gave it to Mary and Laura to play with. They could throw it into the air and spat it back and forth with their hands, or it would bounce along the ground, and they could kick it. But even better fun than a balloon was the pig's tail. Pa skinned it for them carefully, and into the large end he thrust a sharpened stick. Ma opened the front of the cook stove and raked hot coals out into the iron hearth. Then Mary and Laura took turns holding the pig's tail over the coals. It sizzled and fried, and drops of fat dripped off it and blazed on the coals. Ma sprinkled it with salt. Their hands and their faces got very hot, and Laura burned her finger, but she was so excited she did not care. Roasting the pig's tail was such fun that it was hard to play fair, taking turns. 
At last it was done. It was nicely browned all over, and how good it smelled. They carried it into the yard to cool it, and even before it was cool enough, they began tasting it and burned their tongues. They ate every little bit of meat off the bones, and then they gave the bones to Jack. And that was the end of the pig's tail. There would not be another one until next year. Wow. I mean, it does sound good. It's heckin' evocative. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's like, a, it's just really good writing. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, Jack is their little bulldog. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Got you. Um, <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and just right, like like that the the description of that bladder balloon and that mm-hmm. most succulent, amazing pig's tail. <sighs> yeah. Um yeah. and then in case you guys aren't excited about pig's tails and bladder balloons, um I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to give you one more example. This is like maybe the most um uh, w- one of the more like like luscious descriptions of foods that you get from Laura growing up, um, and this is during a uh, a town Thanksgiving where uh, a whole like like one of the 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 lady societies has has brought in this big feast for the whole town, um, and so okay, in the very center of one table, a pig was standing, roasted brown and holding in its mouth a beautiful red apple. In all their lives, Laura and Carrie had never seen so much food. Those tables were loaded. There were heaped dishes of mashed potatoes and of mashed turnips and of mashed yellow squash, all dribbling melted butter down their sides from little hollows in their peaks. There were large bowls of dried corn, soaked soft again and cooked with cream. There were plates piled high with golden squares of cornbread and slices of white bread and of brown, nutty-tasting graham bread. There were cucumber pickles and beet pickles and green tomato pickles, and glass bowls on tall glass stems were full of red tomato preserves and wild choke cherry jelly. On each table was a long, wide, deep pan of chicken pie, with steam rising through the slits in its flaky crust. Most marvelous of all was the pig. It stood so lifelike, propped up by short sticks, above a great pan filled with baked apples. It smelled so good. Better than any smell of any other food was that rich, oily, brown smell of roasted pork that Laura had not smelled for so long. Yeah. Yeah. I love a good feast description. Right? Oh, my heck. Uh Uh, And, right, and it's so weird because, like, she doesn't even get to eat that feast at that moment. She goes into the kitchen immediately and starts washing dishes, and she's washing dishes for the entire feast because she's being a good and dutiful daughter and and Uh helpful child. And, like, she... She 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 gets like like the like the scraps from the bones later, and you know, mm. talks about how delicious it is anyway. Um, right. But yeah, threaded through the books, there's this real like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, self sufficiency kind of thread that I didn't. I certainly, as a child, was not thinking about <laughs> the fact that that's <laughs> like kind of really insidious. Um, right. Uh, yeah. And even as an adult, it had not occurred to me um, how much, yeah, that's kind of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit in the interview. Yeah. But yeah, for sure. Um, well, what about the nutrition? <laughs> Donate propaganda. <laughs> yes. Agreed. I'm on board with that. No matter how <laughs> lovely it is. 
Uh, we do have some numbers for you. A couple, a couple, sort of, and some like random facts that I didn't fit in anywhere else. But yeah. Yes. Okay. Here's my contribution. Um, <laughs> they're very popular. <laughs> They've sold millions of copies and have been translated into over 40 languages. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't realize how big they are in other countries. That's very weird to me because yeah. it, because they are so American. Um, but okay, yeah. uh, there are uh, also spinoff book series about Laura's mother and grandmother and daughter. Her diary and a number of her letters have also been published as books. Um, in 2017, a biography called Prairie Fires, written by Caroline Frazier, won a Pulitzer. Um, or it was published that year. I, I don't know how the Pulitzers work off the top of my head. But uh in addition to the original TV series, there have been TV movies and miniseries and a stage musical, a documentary, an anime <laughs> in Japan mm-hmm. in the 70s. Um, also, wanted to throw this in, on the set of the TV show, apparently what the cast was eating was very often fried chicken from KFC. Wow. <laughs> that feels like some kind of metaphor, <laughs> symbolism or something. <laughs> um there are also like this it's it's so the fandom of this is so big and i had no idea um there are museums uh located around all of the places that she talks about in the books where the family lived um and a couple others for for example, um, uh, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Historic Home and Museum is out on Rocky Ridge Farm, which was Wilder's adult home. Um, like her daughter Rose helped set it up after her mother's death. They have a garden there with heirloom vegetables representative of a late 19th, early 20th century home. Um, they they also host uh, uh, Wilder Days every September, which is like a festival. This year, it's going to include their eighth annual fiddle contest. They also have someone come play pause fiddle. Wow. It's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. It really is. It really is. Now it's a whole thing that has a podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Yeah. And like they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're not sponsors. They're like, like Emily's a friend. Um, uh, yeah. It's, they're just doing a really cool job. And, um, and we'd been, or I'd, I'd been, this might have not been on your radar at all, but um, but, but I've been wanting to do a, a Little House episode for a while, so. Yeah, it's just a good fit. The timing was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are going to get into that interview we keep talking about. Um, uh, but first, we are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. And we're back. Thank you, sponsors. Let us get into our fabulous interview. Uh, first of all, hello. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. We're so excited. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, and we, we like to start these things off with a nice, easy, or hypothetically easy, depending on how you're feeling today. Uh, who are you? <laughs> wow, that could get very existential very quickly. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Glennis McNichol, and I am the host and writer of the Wilder podcast and also a writer and journalist outside of the Wilder podcast. <laughs> and I am Emily Marinoff, not usually on mic, usually behind mic producing the podcast. I'm producer and co-creator of Wilder. And yeah, and all around, yeah, all around producer currently for iHeart Podcasts. Uh, hello. Thank you. That was very <laughs> succinct, not too existential. Um, uh, so, okay. So, so Wilder is a podcast about Laura Ingalls Wilder and the Little House phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, did, did you both, both grow up reading the books or watching the show? Um, a little bit of both? Emily and I are very different ages. <laughs> I think it's maybe a good way to begin this conversation. We are, okay. you're 20 years younger than me. Yeah. I'm 27. Yeah, I'm 48, I think. Yeah. So we have very different experiences with Little House, but I actually think that that uh, has, you know, propelled the podcast and a lot of takes on it and a lot of interest uh, in it. When I grew up fully Gen X, Little House, the TV show, was still on in primetime new episodes and oh, was wow, yeah. also on in reruns in the afternoon on different channels so that I could come home from school and watch one episode and Laura would be, you know, like a teenager in love with Almanzo. And then at five <laughs> o'clock, she'd be eight years old and a child. And then you could switch to the primetime one and she'd be a grown up with a kid. It was just like it was just oh, she wow. was everywhere. And I was a very and continue to be so voracious reader as a kid. So I also had all of the books. But it's very hard for me to separate what I came to first because they were both so present. Omnipresent, yeah. Yeah, it's very true of a, a lot of 
people my age. That's like a very not everybody was as devoted to the books, but Little House was very present. Whether you liked it or not, I think most people <laughs> have some impression of it because there was m- fewer channels, fewer TV sets in the home, and like it just was everywhere. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm 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 41, so I when I was growing up, the show was already in reruns entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up with the books. I was rereading the first one a little bit just before we came in here, and it's wild to me, no pun intended, how um how much of it I just remember because I had to have read them dozens of times. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised at how much of the first book is like animals being slaughtered and eaten? Um. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I did love the food parts the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've always been a little bit obsessed with food. So I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, tell me about that. I want to know about the pig's bladder. Is the tail really the tastiest part? I don't know. They I make got a made fun of on this podcast for bringing up the pig's bladder so much. But I think <laughs> as a kid, it really resonates with you. You're like, a pig's bladder sounds awfully fun to play with. And that pig's tail sounds delicious. Right. Okay. So, so Annie, meanwhile, (laughs) has not consumed any of this media. Right. I'm really appreciating the look on your face as we say this because it seems very normal to me. But yeah, I feel like pig splatter could be code for did you read Little House or did you not read Little House? (laughs) Ooh. Well, I did. I did research before coming in here, but it was it's interesting to me because I'm normally in a lot of these situations. I'm a very fanish person like I'm the fan one that was like I can tell you what episode this happened in this happened in I'm not usually on the side so it's very interesting I have friends who are uh, very big fans but my only interaction with it pre-research was I just had a vague image of like a wagon in the prairie and that's that's like it Yeah, but I mean that's an over. That's where the books and the TV show overlap. Is that's the opening scene. That's like the credits opening of Mm -hmm. every show, and also that's sort of the emblematic of all the books. Like that iconic covered wagon, Mm -hmm. I think comes from the Little House. Like our idea of the covered wagon on the prairie is very much rooted in Little House. Yeah, Little House and also Oregon Trail, I guess, yeah. for, for me growing up as a kid. Um, but but Emily, you um, you grew up watching the show, right? I did. Um, that Yeah, I came to that first. I was a big, like, Hallmark TV land Nick at Night kid. So I was already watching a lot of 70s TV. And then I don't know who introduced it to who, but my friend and I became obsessed with the TV show, the Little House TV show, and just got all of the DVD box sets. And I actually remember it being really dramatic of, like, convincing my dad to get me the first box set. And it was like, it was expensive at like Best Buy or something. And I like (laughs) don't know if I threw a lot of fits as a kid, but I think I did throw a fit about that. And I was like, just like, I want it. Yeah. And I just watched that constantly. And my friend and I would like play in our backyard, pretend to be pioneers, would want to forage for food and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I think I did read the books after that, but kind of opposite to you, Lauren, I like it. That was so different from the TV show that I was also maybe a little bit too old at that point and like sure. wasn't really ready for it yet. But I did and I brought it somehow. Um, got my hands on the Little House cookbook as a oh. <laughs> as a kid while I was a fan of the TV show, and that's one of my main memories of being a Little House fan growing up. Is like. Then reading these recipes and being like, Mom, what's lard? Can we get lard? And can we, like, <laughs> and can we make stuff? 
<laughs> but, um, but now for this podcast, I've obviously reread all of the books. And I mean, yeah, the food is still my favorite part, unsurprisingly. I feel like I have to do a full disclosure right now and tell you guys the food is the part of the books I cared about least. And <laughs> and a running joke of this uh, podcast is we interview so many people who who took like this love of making things and their sort of survivalist skills and it came out during the pandemic. And I was like, I live in a studio in New York and I've never turned my oven on. So whatever it was that appealed about the little house books to me, I liked reading about the food, but it never translated into I want to make the food for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. I was much more like I want to run around the prairie on a horse and see some wolves. So it was, but it's it's uh, fascinating to me how, going back to read it, how she's sort of like an original food blogger almost. Like she's so good at writing food. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and the, the detail that she puts into it mm-hmm. and how clear and present from, because she was writing these when she was in her, what, late 50s, early 60s? Mid 60s. She was Mid 65 60s. the first, when oh my the book, first book came out. And yeah, and and so so she was recalling these details from childhood. That's, I think, too, when we're talking about like her writing of food, the first book came out in 1932, at the at the beginning of the depression. It wasn't quite the height of the depression, but the depression was in full swing, and she was writing about her childhood in the 1870s, which I don't know that we learn about it in these terms anymore. But that was sort of the first Great Depression. There was a huge depression in the 1870s. So she's writing about a childhood of real deprivation and poverty at a time when the country is also experiencing it in the depression. And I think the degree, the vividness that she puts into the descriptions of food almost feel like she's feeding her childhood self at a time when so many people are starving and and that this is offering sort of some strange I don't know if food porn is quite the right description but it this like she's providing people with a sustenance that they don't have access to in real life while also providing her childhood self with this bounty that was not available to her as a kid so there's a like the bracketing of those two things once you understand the time line of when the books were written is really intense, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, the, the food that she's writing about is often very much not fancy. I mean, it, it's not some some of the other properties that we've talked about in, in episodes and in fictional foods episodes are like Game of Thrones or, you know, something <laughs> like that, where you have these lavish feasts and mm-hmm. there's like pages and pages devoted to talking about all of the fanciest ices and whatever it is um, uh, and pineapples everywhere. And, and this is like, for Christmas, we each got one stick of candy. Holy crap, it was the best thing that ever happened to us. And you believe it. Like, that was tr- that was truly the highlight of their year, and she never mm-hmm. forgot it. And she wanted to give that to her readers, too, which is... Yeah. yeah. But, you know, she talks in one of the books about getting oranges, right? They each had an mm-hmm. orange. Or they she went to that party, and she had a slice of orange. And the mm-hmm. way she describes it, she could have been describing sort of a Game of Thrones feast. And I remember my grandmother, who grew up during the Depression, saying, when I was a child, getting an orange was such a big deal because, of course, they are not native. I grew up in Canada. And you didn't have 
you know, fruit was not transported the same way. So it, sure. there, it rings true in that sense of if you'd never had an orange or you had no access to sugar whatsoever and you got that one stick of sugar that Mr. Edwards swam across the Verdigris River in, you know, Indian territory or you had one orange that would probably stand out in your memory the same way that my going to, like, a 10-course feast might – or I'm not even sure that would stand out in my memory to the degree, like, sugar would have for her. Yeah, um, it, it's it, it's it's very strange. Like, we, we talk um, – we wind up talking on the show a lot about sugar because it impacted so many so, – so much of, of colonization and um, just everything else that was going on in the world from the time that, that the, the American colonies were started up through, I mean, easily the beginning of the 1900s. I mean, easily the time that, that Laura was alive. Um, and we talk a lot about – this time period, like the 1870s to the 1890s, being a time when sugar was becoming very much more ubiquitous, like, mm-hmm. like or very much more like something that, like, any old anybody could afford. Um, but it's so not true for them. Um, right. It's Even as you say that, I can think of the moments in the book where she gets sugar. In Little House in the yeah. Big Woods, when they go to the store and they each get the little sugar candies. But mm-hmm. she's jealous of the one Mary gets. And at mm-hmm. Christmas, where they get something wrapped up in a little ball or the in Little House in the Prairie, the book where they get, you know, the Christmas candy or Pa eats the Christmas candy to survive right. in a snowbank. Like it, He's it has starving really... in a snowbank and she doesn't mind that he ate it because he would have starved. Right. But yeah. he still apologizes like it's like the worst thing that yeah. he could have possibly and done. He He's ate like, I'm the so oyster sorry. Can't crackers too. They had oyster mm-hmm. crackers and she's so good at imparting the um, significance of yeah. everything that they have and and like the gratitude for even the smallest things that as a kid you're just like this sounds like the gr- I don't know what an oyster cracker is but I bet it's <laughs> delicious or in the long winter when the turkey barrel comes in and you're like oh my god they got a whole turkey and meanwhile as a kid you're probably reading this with like a plate of chips ahoy cookie glass of milk your peanut butter and jam sandwich you're like you know craft <laughs> dinner and like four other meals you had that day yeah it's um Oh my goodness. Uh, well, okay. So, so you guys, you guys, as, as part of your your research and experience for this podcast, you went to a bunch of the locations that she was writing about in the books. And I mean, you know, obviously the world has changed a great deal in the past hundred plus years. That that part of the country has changed a lot, or has it? Like, like how much of a sense of place did you get from from going to there? Well, all of the houses that it, she writes about in the book. They're not standing, but they have been either reconstructed or turned into museum sites. So you actually can drive around to each of the little houses. And many of them have artifacts, actual artifacts from the books. Um, And they hold pageants in the summer, which is what we toured. And a lot of people do this. I've been to them more than once. This is Emily's first impressions there. But, like, a lot of these places in the country, it doesn't feel like they've changed hardly at all. They are all three to four hours away from an airport by car. The population, if you look up what the population when Laura lived there, it's, you know, similar to what the population is today. They're very, very small. Um, The landscape is not identical to what she describes, you know, environmental 
factors have a lot to do with that. But it's it's there's a similar sort of remoteness to it. And so when you're in sort of Desmet, South Dakota, which is where the last four books take place, you can walk down that main street and really feel like you are walking in a chapter of her book, which increases sort of the intensity and the veracity of some of the experiences is like it doesn't feel that far removed, um, which is strange. But a lot of the middle of the country, you know, this is a huge country. <laughs> America is enormous. And I sometimes that sounds funny to say, but I'm not sure people fully grasp how big America is. And you try and drive across mm-hmm. it and you're just like, yeah. oh, my God, we've been living on gas station food <laughs> seven <laughs> hours. Oh yeah, yeah, right, and 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 yeah, that the sheer luxury of when you live in a city like like New York, you guys are in New York, we're in Atlanta, of of having a grocery store once every three miles, you know, at the most, at the most. If not, I have like four a grocery stores has... downstairs within one block of my apartment. Like, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I really, I I mean, I'm literally upstairs from Trader Joe's, Fairway, Citarella. And uh, Key Foods. That's all within a one block radius of of my apartment. So it's very, but I also think it's access to, I think a lot of times when you're in the middle of the country, your best source of fruits and vegetables is Walmart. And a lot of the conversations we have in urban centers around, you know, the proliferation of Walmarts and whether or not that's problematic and unionization sometimes loses sight of that being a source of the reality, sure. Food that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. Like that might be the only place you're getting avocados and that might be the only place you're getting fresh fruit. And both of those things are true at the same time. Sorry, But Emily, what was your first impression? No, um, I mean, yeah, all of that. I mean, and we talk about that so much. I think the biggest thing was, yeah, the thing that you mentioned that, uh, yeah, the towns are almost always the same close to the same population as when Laura lived there. Some of them even less. Baroque, Iowa, which is not in the books, but is a huge chapter of Laura's life that she left out of the books, um, isn't even a city anymore. It's 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 like an, in, what, what, wow. what, what was the word that they used it's to in, call it? It's, I think it's just incorporated. And yeah. what's fascinating in some of these places is that, like Baroque, they, in, it was more thriving in Laura's time than now. They thought the railway depot was were coming that way. They thought trade was coming through there. And then it just got rerouted a slight distance away and the town has sort of disappeared. Or when the interstate, I mean, we know that on Route 66 in the south, like when the interstate went through and took traffic off of Route 66, which had initially been linking all the main streets through America together, Mm -hmm. all of those small towns died. So it can be intense to be in places that were far more thriving and diverse in some cases then than they are now. Yeah. Yeah. I And I think the main difference from when she lived there is that now the people who live there know how powerful the draw of Laura Ingalls Wilder is. Like when she was alive, obviously, this was just like, oh, Laura went and later in her life, now she's writing about all of us. Now people know what our town is. But it is like the Americanness of being able to capitalize on this icon. And that's really the only reason all these tourists, like these towns might still exist because of farmland or because of of, of other industries. But Laura really is the main industry of all of these towns. And everyone kind of knows each other because of it. It really was when we were prepping to go on the road trip and finding contacts in all of these small towns, sometimes they were very hard to find. And I'm like producer freaking out of like, we're not ready. We're not ready. Like we don't know who we're going to talk to. And Glennis is like, it's fine. We meet one person. We'll meet the entire town. They'll just walk us. And sure enough, (laughs) and sure enough, we met 
Anne Lesh, who we love, who runs the Ingalls Homestead in DeSmet, South Dakota, connected us to pretty much every single person we needed to know and more in DeSmet, like walked us into a retirement home, sat us down with a woman who like constructed all of the oral histories about the Ingalls family with people who actually knew them. Um, and that it was those moments were really magical. And that is, I am from LA and I now live in New York. I am definition of just a coastal person. And this was, was actually my first time driving through the Midwest. And I, um, really, really loved it. Uh, and just having those experiences were, yeah, really wonderful. Uh, you you mentioned you mentioned gas station food. Um, I hope that you got some other things than gas station food at some points in your journey. Um, did did you get any like regional specialties? Like, was anyone like, oh man, you have to go to this diner and get the pie? Like, it, w- were there any moments like that on the road, or was it more like, oh heck, let me eat a cheese sandwich and keep going? Like, what was the vibe? Both. I think it was yeah. both. <laughs> uh, I've done enough road trips to know to go to Walmart and pick up the baby carrot bags and the, Mm. you know, apples and whatever it is that you might want because you might not see fruit or vegetables again for a while. Or, like, you get super excited if you spot a Cracker Barrel. Oh, yeah. But also, I mean, there are food deserts in the Midwest without question. But there's also, you know, when we were in Huron, South Dakota, there's this place called the Primetime Tavern, which serves you, like— I've been dreaming it of, of it yeah, <laughs> It's like you get a slide of prime rib with a baked potato with sour cream and a wedge of um, iceberg lettuce. And it's so— With ranch dressing. With ranch dressing. And it's, like, the only thing they serve, and it's so good. <laughs> and some of the little coffee shops would have homemade pie. And, you know— Wisconsin, when we were in Wisconsin, we ate really well. Like, it's a hit and miss sort of thing. And and I think it's just, this sounds, it's hard to talk about traveling around the middle of the country that sort of sometimes veering into sort of Norman Rockwell-esque territory. But a lot of it is like generosity when you meet people. And when we were driving, um, was it from Burr Oak to Mankato? When we, was it maybe through Minnesota? And we stopped and they're like, oh, we've just, I went in to get a coffee. And they're like, oh, we've just pulled out this tray of fresh baked chocolate chip cookies or like the people had brought their eggs in from the farm. And then at the same time, you go three hours and you're like, I cannot eat another bag of Cheez-Its or I literally am going to die. But that's the best thing they have at the gas station. So like it's a real hit and miss. I will also say that there's weird, not weird, weird's the wrong word, but there's cuisine that you would not expect to find in certain places. Like there's, we had really great sushi and shared in Wyoming, you know, <laughs> and, and it's, um and it's funny to go into places like that sometimes because it'll be, it's a sushi restaurant set up and like everyone walks in in a cowboy hat and cowboy boots and they're yeah. also thrilled mm-hmm. to have access to sushi. So, you know, those sorts of pockets, um, I had been in a lot of these places before. So I made Emily. I was, we were doing an interview and I go, we have 10 minutes if we want sushi because it's an hour and a half to get to the sushi and it's closing at six and I want some sushi. Like I, that, was, like, I was like, speed up, the, speed it up. Let's that go. Was, that was the same energy for the Primetime Tavern, yes. which Glennis was speaking about for months before yeah, we actually went on the road. Tavern. So like all of it was leading up to that, to the Primetime Tavern in Huron, South Dakota. Yeah. And um, <laughs> there were two, we were there in Desmet for two nights. There were pageants both nights. We got everything we needed the first night so that the second night we we went and we went and we said goodbye to the pageant directors and we're like, we're so sorry, we have to leave. The Primetime Tavern closes. And they said, oh no, you have to go. Go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> out there 
here too, I think we think driving, you know, you drive 20 minutes to dinner or whatever, even just in the suburbs. And when you're in that part of the country, it's not unusual to drive an hour to dinner. Like that's just a normal uh, thing. But yeah, where was there was? I'm trying to think of. We had some really good milkshakes too. I mean, oh, of course, we had really good breakfast in Pepin, Wisconsin. But Pepin, Wisconsin, oh. is right in a Little House in the Big Woods when they're on Lake Pepin. Lake Pepin is actually. I don't know if the right term is. It's actually part of the Mississippi. A, tri- a tributary. It's like an is estuary, maybe. Like it's actually just the Mississippi that's widened, so it's not actually a lake. And a lot of people from Minneapolis. Um, St. Paul have their cottages there now. So when you go there, we went to a great winery there. But you don't feel like you're in the middle of the country in Wisconsin. Whereas when you're in Walnut Grove or when you go west of DeSmet, like when you hit Waldrug. But Waldrug has great pancakes for breakfast. So Waldrug was, well, I feel like Waldrug is worth mentioning. That was a highlight. I also think that was the start of like bison burger territory. I think that's what I ate in Waldrug. I don't know if you guys have, like when you, my, I, perception of the West is if you're doing that northern route, you are in eastern South Dakota and it still feels like part of the Midwest and farming. And then you cross the Missouri River and you hit buffalo grassland into and that's when you start feeling like you're in the West. Like there's a really clear divide that once you cross, you feel like you've switched to the West. And yeah, if you're it's going, like flat and no trees and right. And it's and just that forever. there's a wildness to it that's so beautiful and the farming sort of disappears, and then you hit Waldrug, which is right by um, the Badlands. The Badlands National Park. Um, have you guys been to Waldrug? No. It's this it's very Americana. They have literally hand painted posters for hundreds of miles that are like glasses of water, five cents. And if you're um, if you're part of the military, you drink coffee for free. And they they are so persistent that by the time you get to Waldrug, there's no chance you're not stopping because you're like. What is this place, Waldrug? <laughs> and it started because people driving across when when vehicles first came around, and even before that, um, they would just literally the pharmacists that lived there started offering free water to people on the road, and then they started pulling off and they started selling them something, and that's where Waldrug comes from. And they have it's like this crazy Americana, like Warren of stores, and also they have wonderful breakfasts. Yeah. It's it's what do we have for breakfast? Like, we I I don't think we we didn't actually have breakfast there. We had we had a lunch there. Oh yeah, because I had a I had a burger because we were in the middle. We went to Rapid City that night. Oh, we went to Ra- Rapid City is very Which glamorous is too. Some of those very western places that had all the railroad money in the turn of the century. We went to this very chic hotel with this like roof. We just gotten off eight hours on the road of gas station food and bison burgers. And I was like, can I please have a martini? <laughs> 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 it is funny how something in like a really awkwardly shaped glass just like screams yes. civilization. You're like, oh man, I finally feel like a human again. Thank you. Like, <laughs> and it was, and it's so funny too. And the bartender is like, absolutely. And I'm like, okay, okay, all right. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> we do have some more of our interview, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. 
And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And we're back. Thank you, sponsors. And back to the interview. I wonder. I, I I don't expect either of you to to know the answer to this question, but I'm just sort of musing aloud. Like I like I wonder how many um, foodways that you know are are from that colonial period have stuck around. Like how many how many foods and dishes and I mean they probably weren't making burgers out of bison back then, but right. Like like how many how many of those plants and animals are still staples? I I don't know, and part of me thinks some. I mean not. This maybe is obvious, but like so much of that is like just what did you have access to? And now we have access to so much more that when I notice it, it's the baked goods, right? Like it's it's the pies and the and the pastries and the cookies more than or the prime rib. Like you're really in in meat, you're in like Mm -hmm. steak and meat land, but it's much different, I think, in that part of the country than when you do the southern route and you start getting down south into more southern cooking, where I think the history of culinary is much more obvious than when you're in the Midwest. Because, I don't know, how would you—I mean, I guess it's just once you get out into Wyoming and Montana, there's a lot more beef. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This might, oh, yeah. might be obvious, but dairy definitely uh, was— not cool. Uh, well, again, I live in Brooklyn, which is the land of oat milk. Now, uh, you the, the the default the default latte is oat milk, and you <laughs> could not get that at a lot of the places I went unless you were in like more of a little college town. Uh, and and similar to what I think it was the same place where we stopped in and they brought us the tray of homemade cookies. I got a coffee and asked for milk. I had learned then not to ask for alternative milk. I was like, I I know I know I'm getting regular milk, but it wasn't just whole milk. It was like in a jar like this and I'm holding up like a glass canister that looks like it could be in Laura's house and it was like (laughs) the thickest like foamy thing of cream as if it had just come out of the cow and I was like I am in the middle of Minnesota. <laughs> like, like there is not another town for a long while. And I like, I did, I am, hey, I'm Jewish. I'm lactose intolerant. I, I brought, I, I did prepare, I brought a lot of lactate on the trip and got made fun Good of for, for it. So. Oh, I don't remember making fun of <laughs> Maybe that was Joe. But yeah. I do think, you know, you find, you know that you're in a college town or you know you're in a place where someone has either gone to college in a big city and come home and opened something up or has, like, returned 
moved there where you walk into a coffee shop and they're like, oh, look, they have almond milk or, oh, look, they have like two different types of milk. There are signifiers like that where you're like someone has gone and come back or someone has left, like been priced out of a city and brought some of these things we associate with more options here. And I think I noticed that more than any sort of um, in that part of the country than any sort of cooking that feels native to the to the history of that part of the country is this more like a migration of wow there's a little hashtag brand Brooklyn like that sense of whether that applies like Nashville and and Atlanta and Portland all these places you find these little like pockets and you're like oh I can sense it's almost like a new type of emigration or immigration where you're sensing like a movement has happened that has dropped this into this coffee shop some milk options for my coffee or mm-hmm. you can get an iced coffee or they have simple syrup. Oh. Like it's these very small yeah, things huh. that that sort of stand out to you when you're on the road in those parts of the country. And that's very interesting to me because I think, as we all know, housing prices are pushing people out of urban centers and, and, and COVID at the same time, too. I mean, this road trip was done last summer. So this is the first time a lot of people have been back out on the road since COVID. So that to me is is interesting of what signifies city living, moving, returning or moving or arriving? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, you know, the the Laura's stories are all about migration anyway, yes. you know, like like starting in uh, a, a home place where what like like Ma's family was uh, near Little House in the Big Woods. And mm-hmm. then um, just being like, well, there's too many people here now, so we need to move. We need to go find better resources. Well, you know. One of the things we talk about is, did they have to do that or was Paul manic? Because I think a grown-up reading of this book after quite a lot of therapy leads you to a lot of people, not just us, but so many people were like, when I reread this as an adult, I was like, what is wrong with Paul? And I think that's a a real question because – but her book is a lot about migration. And someone pointed out to us that even though sort of the sense of the book is that sort of – movement west and manifest destiny. In fact, the Ingalls family travel right. north and south. There's very little western movement. It's up and down. Um, and of course, when they went down the first time, it was to what is now Kansas, what is then the Osage Diminished Reserve, and they were illegally squatting there. So there's a lot of complicated, all movement in America is complicated, I think, and fraught when you really start to peel back the layers. But in this book, especially from the beginning, it was who gets to go where and why and what's not right. being said in this. You know, as someone pointed out, just when you said that land is too crowded and there's not resources, well, there is some truth to that. You know, all of the um, the Homestead Act and, and everyone who was invited into this land that had been cleared by the government of Native Americans in brutal and violent fashion. And then all of these homesteaders were moved in as a way, sort of an occupying force, Right. In some ways by the and the railroad and they stripped the land bare. And so the extinction of bison on the plains in such a short period of time is evidence of a removal of a main food source of a people who were native to the land and subsequently their removal, which opened the land up to occupation and and everything that followed. And of course, you don't get any sense of that in the book. You get you get a very you get an echo of it. Someone pointed right. out to us in one of the books. Laura talks about the buffalo, wa- the flowers growing in the buffalo wallow, but of course, there's no 
buffalo there, and there's no mention of why there's no buffalo there. So there's that is that sense of sort of elegy in the books of a lost mm. world, but without any, not without grounding it in what was lost and why. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, you can tell I, we've been talking about this nonstop for a year. Just yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's yeah. great. It's great. I can hear myself now. Let us like, keep going. Wow, I really have been in the deep end of this for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. No. no, I think the only thing I would add to that, food-wise, also is like she. Yeah, we talk a lot. We have an episode coming up. Um, that will talk a lot about the environmental history of the region and how because of the homesteaders, it's all gone. They dug up the buffalo grass and that caused, you know, eventually caused the Dust Bowl that Laura was living through while she was writing these books. So she was definitely memorializing what the land looked like before humans had completely manipulated it. But also back to food and um, food and just any household chore, just like their way of life, like before... When Laura, Laura and Almanzo um, and their daughter Rose had moved to Mansfield, Missouri after South Dakota, and that's where they settled for the rest of their life, and that's where she wrote all of the books. And her daughter Rose was um, was a very famous, uh, at her time, uh, freelance journalist, which is a whole other thing that we also have many episodes on. But she was mm. the one who convinced Laura to start writing, and originally as a journalist, and she was writing for the Missouri Ruralist, um, basically articles of just like practical tips for housewives and or, or for for farm wives, sorry. Wow. And sure. her and yeah, and it was like product. What are what are the she titles a, we say? Production of eggs. Yeah, she, and Laura was an egg farmer, and and she wrote about egg farming. It was so funny because we met someone in Mansfield who was like, I was so disappointed to find out she farmed white eggs and not brown eggs. And yeah. I uh, clearly the significance <laughs> of this was lost on me, but this was a real, the the people we were talking to who I think maybe were, and they, and many women we talked to referred to themselves as farm wives. Like Mm -hmm. that was, that's a term that was uh, uh, relayed to us by them. Her sense of um, disappointment at the type of eggs that Laura raised was palpable. (laughs) And that to me was so interesting. Like that um, Laura's early journalism was very servicey. And very food oriented Mm -hmm. and like the degree of responsibility and conservation. You even see that in that first book where I really think Little House and Big Woods could be a survivalist guide if you really got Mm -hmm. stuck. And they describe the churning of the butter and but then ma molding the butter in her pretty mold and then taking the carrot, like squeezing the carrot juice out to color the butter so it would be yeah, orange Yeah, because butter in the winter is white because they're eating hay, mm-hmm. not fresh grass, and so it's not as pretty, and everything that Ma puts on her table is pretty. It's so, pretty. Yeah. 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 It's so pretty and cozy. And it is, uh, I really do think that that's the best evidence of her service journalism roots, is like she was preserving their, just their way of life and the way, yeah. because there had already been just from the 1870s to the 1930s, so much modernization that I do think she was trying to preserve what all of the customs were. And actually this, this Little House cookbook, um, the author is uh, Barbara M. Walker, and I'm fairly sure she's like, she is a food historian. She has every recipe that are in the books is in here, and it is historically accurate to the way it would be made and has some suggestions if you want to do it yourself. 
Yeah, like if you cannot find three pounds of lard, then maybe get some canola oil. Like yeah. you're going to be fine. But right. If you're, not yeah. near, if you're not near a pumpkin patch where you can get an unripe pumpkin to make a green pumpkin pie. <laughs> or where they, take out, they go out and shoot the blackbirds because they're eating yeah. the crops and then turn them into a black, a delicious blackbird pie. And when you really think about that, you're like, huh. But in the books, you're like, Oh, this sounds like the best pie yeah. anyone's ever eaten in their right? whole life. And they had gravy or like the, her ability to make gravy or the way like the coffee grounds and that just because there was so little didn't mean that it shouldn't look beautiful. Like there's a deep, deep respect for quality of life, even if the quality is so minimal, it does not release you from it's, it's self-respect, I think, at the core of that. Right. Is is the life you're leading should be as pleasant as you're capable of making it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was, it was so striking to me kind of like, like doing reading for this um, because, you know, like I said, like the food was my favorite part of these books growing up, but as an adult reading this, like their stories about hunger, their stories about um, uh, just basic substance and, and it's, they're, and I guess like kind of those parts were my favorite parts too when I was a kid. Like like uh, the Long Winter was my favorite book because Tiny Goth Lauren was like, oh yeah, yeah, we did, yeah, really time to buckle down. Like you know, in my flannel nightgown with the heat on in my house and like a Labrador Retriever in my lap. But do you remember when Pa goes to Almanzo and Royals and they're making flapjacks with all the butter and the syrup and it state it seems yes. like. The most delicious meal anyone has ever had. But then I, and when I went back to read that as a grown up, I was like, Pa, your whole family is starving. Like, can't you pack up a to go bag of these flapjacks and walk yeah. them back down the block? Like, what is Yeah, like, come here? on. Like, IHOP delivers. Like, let's go. Like, we can make this happen. <laughs> Never occurred to me as a kid, but I was like, as a grown up, I'm like, wait a second. All these women. Or down there grinding coffee and like, or grinding wheat in a coffee grinder, and you're eating flapjacks. Uh-huh. Couldn't you just like bring a few with you anyway? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, like I, like I just, it, it makes me wonder how much uh, uh, Laura, you know, really loved cooking, or, or how much it was sheerly just right. It was just a way of life. It was what you literally had to do because you don't have a Walmart or a, a steakhouse to go to. And so if you want a nice thing like a pie, you figure out how to make a heckin' pie. Mm-hmm. And you and you do it, and you do it as nicely as possible. Um, one of the ones that always sticks with me. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just when you said like rereading them and realizing how much they were starving, I think coming, I think it is a measure of her skill as a writer that she made everything feel so safe and delicious. Yeah. And that when you come back to it with grown-up eyes, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> They're really starving, like like for real starvation and terror and hunger to a degree that must have been so that that so many people experience, but also that you only get a sense of as a kid because the way she writes about it, she's not lying, but it's it's wrapped up in so many other things that you're like, I remember telling my grandmother I wanted to live on the prairie in these times. And she was like, no, you don't. <laughs> Let me tell you something, kid. Like, she was so, like, she was so scoffed at me that I remember being quite upset. And in hindsight, I'm like, can you imagine growing up in the Depression and having your grandchild be like, I want to live in the olden days. And you're like, you're an idiot. I'm like, like no. Right? <laughs> That's cute, honey. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. As you're, like, pouring out your candy and being like, I want to live in the olden days. 
Yeah, um, one of the I, I was going to say one of the um, one of the food scenes that stuck with me that's always stuck with me was when um, uh, Laura it, when, when she's an adult and she's making a pie um, for some of the workers who come by the farm maybe and mm-hmm. she makes it with it's a rhubarb pie and she makes it with salt instead of sugar and everyone is too heckin' polite to like they're all like oh this is a really interesting pie ma'am thank you for <laughs> your yeah <laughs> and just thinking of like right like you couldn't. That was just all you had. Like, if, if you if you suck at making a pie, that's just what you're stuck with. That's it also, I'm so sorry to say this, but it also makes you realize why men were like, I want to marry her. She's a good cook. I mean, yeah. truly, now, I mean, as a grown up now, I'm like, yeah, I'd want to marry someone who could cook too. Like, it, as a kid, you're just like, it doesn't <laughs> right? matter. But as an adult, when Pa's constantly complimenting Caroline on... Um, her ability to make do and her ability to make everything delicious. And you think, oh, yeah, this is the difference between everyone losing their mind and <laughs> life having any shred of joy or pleasantness to it. And remember when Laura goes off to teach and the she's staying with that awful couple and the woman's going mad. And as a kid, you're like, she's an evil woman who wants to kill everyone. And as a grown up, you're like, no, that would be me. I would also yeah. try and <laughs> stab my husband in the middle of yep. the night for dragging Thousand me to percent. the percent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm like, I too would want to marry a good cook. I, I sort of get these terrible tropes that we're still living with, but they kind of make sense. <laughs> yeah, I also think she does the first, especially the first few books before Mary goes blind, like there's so much on how in terms of housework and chore and, you know, cooking and chores, like Mary is just so much better than her at everything. And coming up with these as a kid, I was like, Laura's not the one who cooks. Like, Laura's the tomboy. She's running around. She's riding horses. But also when you read them again, it's like, she wouldn't be able to write about this so well if she wasn't forced to do that for survival. Like, and you have, yeah, you have to get good at it if you're going to be a successful woman in- on the prairie. Like, that is one of the qualifications. <laughs> Just that. And and then there's so much, Laura, Laura hates sewing in the first few books. And then works in a dress shop or or, or or works for a tailor in DeSmet for like two full books <laughs> and yeah. just has and just has to do it to help her family get by and obviously got very good at it. Yeah, I, I feel like that's not part of like all of these survival adventure books that I was honed into as a child. I mm-hmm. was like, oh, yeah, tomboys rule. Let's go. Like, <laughs> no. yeah. And like d- just the stark actual reality that she did write about was like, whoop, yeah. like, nope, like, nah, I'm still running around in the creek, like getting mm-hmm. leeches. Mm-hmm. Like, that's probably going to be fine. And you realize that day, you know, in, the, in by the shores of Silver Lake where her and her cousin Lena are out on the prairie riding around on horseback. And it's such a magical chapter. And you think back on it like as a kid, you're like, I want that life. And you really realize as a grown-up, it was one day in a life mm. of severe, I mean, drudgery. Laura worked from the age of nine. So, mm. like, that she that day was not reflective of her life. That day stood out to her in that extraordinary detail because it was such a rarity for her to have that kind of freedom. And I think putting or you know and and later in that chapter her and lena go inside and they have to wash like 200 dishes and then you know when they spend the winter in the surveyor's house and ma opens up the the ground floor to take in all these travelers and and lets these men sleep there 
and they're cooking for them morning till night and washing dishes and they can't keep up. And what you take from that is, oh, they might have some money now that they can keep. But the reality of the physical labor and how awful it must have been over and over and over again is sort of lost in that writing because of where she allows your focus to land. And and again, there's a sort of a, a very subtle small line where Ma says, go upstairs to the attic and lock the door behind you. And you don't fully get as a kid what Ma is terrified. Mm-hmm. They're in a house of all of these men. Pa is not around. Mm-hmm. And she's got four young girls, you know, and that that where the danger is coming from in that moment you're so like, well, maybe they'll have some money for Mary to go to school for the blind. Not like, oh, my God, Ma's terrified they're going to be sexually assaulted. And also they've been working 18 hours a day for three weeks or whatever it is. Yeah. It's intense to yeah. think about. It really it is intense to it's... think about the degree and that she sat down at 65 to write about all this after such a lifetime of hard work. Like, it is intense to think about the degree of work that went into making a meal. Like, you'd make a morning meal, you'd turn around, you'd make midday meal. You'd turn around, you'd yeah. make the evening meal. Get up and do it all over again. Yeah. There's a whole day of the week where you just churn butter because yeah. that's because the cow is making milk. What else are you going to do with it? You need to preserve it somehow. Yeah. Um, so let's go. It's time to churn the butter. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I wonder how much of it is like is like her sort of golden lens of the past um, or her, her own personal nostalgia for it or her wanting to write, provide like a nice story to mm-hmm. people during this also very hard time that a mm-hmm. lot of Americans were going through. Um, I think what comes through is she loves her family so much. Yeah. Like I think yeah. that's the thing that sh- that's n- not fiction and that permeates a lot of the terribleness and – why she wrote, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why she wrote it and how much her daughter was involved in the writing and the structuring is in two entire episodes of this podcast. <laughs> because her daughter is like this crazy journalist who makes a lot of things up and was one of the early founders of the Libertarian Party. So um, there's a lot of narratives in Little House that when you come to it through that lens, you're like, wait a second. But... Yeah, I think her love of her family like comes through in some of the descriptions of the food is the truth. Like how you're describing safety and comfort and joy and coziness, and it's coming through in the food. Yeah. Of which there was very little. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, and, and yeah, it's really it, it is really weird to me how recent I did not understand as a child growing up how recent this really was mm-hmm. like I, it's it's put, put, putting into perspective that she was alive when my parents were born mm-hmm. yeah what yeah. like that like because this you know reading it it reads like another planet um yeah. my favorite line in our first episode is that she was born in a covered wagon and by the end of her life she had flown on an airplane so she <laughs> like she is so so recent like yeah. she she probably knew who Elvis was, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> I used to get mad at my mother that she hadn't driven to meet Laura Ingalls because they lived at the same time. When I was a kid, I could not conceive of being alive at the same time as Laura Ingalls and not. And my mother grew up in a tiny town in northern Ontario with more resources than Laura Ingalls had. But, like, 
relatively speaking, not a ton. And I was like, I don't understand. Why didn't you drive down to Missouri in 1956 when you were 12 years old and meet Laura Ingalls? And my mother was like, why don't we pin some braids onto your hat today? Okay, like, just, you know, dial it down a little bit, kid. Um, you know, Allison Arngrim, who played Nellie Olson on the show, we interviewed her for the podcast. And she made a point oh, cool. that we think about a lot, which is, one of the reasons these books continue to appeal is that they're describing the way a lot of people on Earth continue to live, right? This degree of um, limited resources and poverty is not the way we live now, but it is the way a lot of people on Earth live. And these books have a global appeal. For better and worse, there's a lot wrong in these books, um, a lot of you know, racist, violent, troubling things. And also, they're speaking to a way of life that is still being experienced in a lot of places. So it isn't oh, yeah. that long ago. Yeah. It's now for a lot of people. Absolutely. Can can we talk a little bit about some of the racist, troubling, terrible, violent things mm-hmm. that happen mm-hmm. in these books? Because um, we, we and we, we touched on this earlier when when we were talking about the just the sheer like manifest destiny colonization aspect of everything that was going on. Um, but, uh, but right, you know, like, like, like the reason that I didn't, that, that, that we didn't want to do this episode earlier on Saver was just, uh, th- there was the whole um, uh, situation where one of the children's book awards that had previously been named after the Laura her. Ingalls, it's the most prestige. It was the most prestigious children's book award had been named the Laura Ingalls children's book award and now it's changed it's the children's literature legacy award yeah Yeah. and when it changed i think you don't we talked about this in the podcast and certainly was part of the motivation for this podcast is like you don't really love anything quite the way you love it when you're a kid and the the extra layer of little house is that she was a real person right like anne of green gables i also loved and she's not a real person and so there is a degree of there's an extra layer of this that comes from her being an actual person in the world where you can say, well, if she did this, I could do it. Or she actually did this. This isn't a novel. I'm, you know, there's a whole conversation of why it's filed in fiction, not nonfiction. And so when that award was changed, I think there was a, a really intense reaction that was coming from a place of feeling like almost part of your identity, like this thing that you loved so unconditionally as a kid is being called into question whether or not you're a person who had actually reread the book since you were a kid or fully grasped what the issues were that you know visceral response to it um is coming from such a deep place that i think you know getting into kids heads and hearts is you know as we all know pretty intense i mean we're watching it play out in different ways with harry potter and watch it play out with in different ways with a lot of other things but mm-hmm. but I think we interviewed um the the president of the American Library Association who kind of who spoke to us about the decision to change the name of the the award and we pointed out like they like so it was named the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award because she was the first recipient of it and they haven't taken away that award she is still the first recipient of that award and which is a testament to how influential she was for children's book writing at her time um, but, you know, taking the name off of that award, I think rightly so, um, just makes room for 
for being able to recognize the new strides that are being made in that genre with a much, much more inclusive stories. If you come out of reading Little House as a kid, that should hopefully influence you to be a person who wants to look at these things, honestly, I think. Like, it's not good enough to say I love this and subsequently it's good. It's, I think... And part of what motivated this podcast was this sense of, like, if I love it this much, I have to be honest about the thing that I'm loving. And, like, what is actually here? Let's go take a look at this this idea, this person. Who was she really? What was actually happening here? And, like, the answer to that is so complicated and so um, – it is such a rabbit hole to go down and so fascinating. But, like, you should be required to – interrogate these things that are so formative to you because everything is a problem <laughs> literally everything there's, is problematic it's true everything it's is true. a problem america is a problem i mean it's amazing yeah. there's america is a problem too and um when that award was changed i mean i understand where that response is coming to because to some degree i had it although i had not i think for a lot of people my age uh you grew up on the books and the TV show and maybe you didn't come back to them until you had kids and you're reading them to your kids and you got to Little House on the Prairie, the book, which is where a much of I mean, there's problems in all of the books, but that is significant problems. And you got to the chapter and where Ma is extremely racist and you're like, wait a second. Is this always here? Like, oh, my God, what's going on here? I had I I knew what was in the book, so I think there was less of a shock to me. But I had plenty of people come to me when their kids were that age being like, wait a second, what's going on here? Yeah. And But then I think that opens the door to, like, why didn't that stand out when we were reading it when we were kids in the 70s right. and 80s? And then why didn't it stand out? The even bigger question is, <laughs> why didn't it stand out in the 30s when it was being public? Like, you know, like, there's a lot sure. of, there's a lot of uh, questions here. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's it's... Like, like we were saying, like, like you were saying with, with the level of, um, of basic subsistence that a lot of people are living with day to day, you know, we, we can look at these books and go like, oh man, those attitudes were super racist. And, uh, and there's, oh man, I mean, they see a minstrel show at one point, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of. That didn't actually happen in real life, by the way. Rose inserted that scene in the book. That is not. Which makes it even worse. Which makes it, which makes it (laughs) even. That's not better. No, 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 that's that's worse. And, you know, Mansfield, where they lived, was a sundown town. There's a, you know, there is, there's a lot of both things happening in these books. Um, That minstrel show, as a kid, I didn't know what blackface was. I was like, oh, it's so cool. They're painting their faces. And as a grown-up, I was like, ah. Ooh. Yeah. And and there's an illustration. There's an illustration. The the illustration is now horrifying. And that even Garth Williams did those illustrations in the 50s. Those were not the original illustrations, even though. the 50s was not. (laughs) No, no, no. But that's even more, you know, we talk of people who defend Laura for writing these things you know the classic she was a woman of her time all these things there's evidence that she knew what was going on and um, and in the 50s even more so other people should have known that that was not okay to depict in that way and when in the yeah. in Little House on the Prairie the book on the opening pages the original line when they moved to Indian territory what was the Osage Diminished Reserve the line was um there were no people there, just Indians. That was the original right. line. And it was a yeah. decade until a reader wrote in and said their child was upset by that line because it suggested Indians weren't people. 
And Laura's editor wrote to her to tell her this. And Laura's immediate response is, that's a horrible mistake. I never meant to insinuate Indians weren't people. They changed the line subsequently to read, there was no settlers there, only Indians, which is somewhat, which is true, although there's no more explanation beyond that. Um, But her editor, who's this legendary editor, wrote back to the woman who wrote in and said, I'm astounded that no one has spotted this in the nearly 20 years that this book. And that, to me, is the bigger problem than what Laura is writing is, and this is often, this is still very true when you open the New York Times or you open a major magazine and you're like, how did this get to print? How did it make it through all of these reads and then how did it last for two decades and we know the answer to that because it's a culture that accepts this narrative very easily and that this is one you know um version of it but and especially like oh it's a sweet old white woman so like we can give her a pass because she's a she's a product of her time so we should just print this without any kind of questioning because it's giving an honest look about how racist we were very recently or still are. And also I would say like uh, Again, this is now. Like this, like, this is, is now. still exactly. now for a lot of people. So uh, and yes. And also, you know, as a number of people said to us, it's he said to me, like we're coming from this sometimes from a perspective like everything we're writing now is gonna hold up to interrogation fifty years <laughs> from now. Which is not to say we shouldn't be interrogating Little House, but we there is a puritanical element to some of this criticism where I'm like, sure. I don't know. Like it's not she's not the only problem. It's just that there's why why is she still around? It's like, yeah, she, it's what is it about her that continues to appeal to a degree that we have allowed these other things to bother us less? And that is a question we could be asking of like oh, most of American culture, to be quite honest. And so I find her far more that that she's a doorway into that question more than like, was Laura Ingalls Wilder a racist? Is like, why is she still here? Like, what is it about her that wraps up all of these things in a way that wants, makes us want to hold them so dear and and not question them the, to the degree we should be? Because she's also, it's very safe and cozy. I mean, there's a lot, <laughs> they, these things are wrapped up in stuff that we like very much mm-hmm. and we like it enough to take it with the terrible parts we have even more of this interview for you but first we have another quick break for a word from our sponsor this episode is brought to you by pronamel not all our favorite foods and drinks are bffs with our teeth Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. There's plenty to celebrate in March. And ex- (laughs) 
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it. It's very complicated. Um in a in a way that I find like invites discussion. Like I don't I don't feel scared to have the discussion. I find it really necessary. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Like like I don't I don't have kids. I don't plan on having kids. Um, but the idea of giving a kid something that I loved so much as a child, but also being willing to have that discussion with them of like, why is this in here? Like, why yeah. did I give you this book? Like, what's what's this all? Can we talk about it? Maybe you should be a better human than mm-hmm. what's portrayed on this page kind of situation. And also, mm-hmm. I mean, we're just working on this episode now, but like also what is happening outside the scope of what that's being written? Like what right. the way that and this is Rose, a lot of Rose, too. You realize that this. I think Laura wrote the books, but they were very much a collaboration with her daughter, who is really a lot. Rose is a lot. <laughs> she's just, I mean, we had to split her into two episodes. She's, there's oh, so wow. much happening with Rose. She was one of the most successful freelance writers in the country in the 20s. Wow. She made, wow. she once sold a short story serial to the Saturday Evening Post for $30,000 in 1925. Like, she really... In she, that time's money? No, in that time's money. I was like, I what? would take 19... Yeah, yes. It was like half a million in today's money. <laughs> she built her parents a different house. They didn't actually want to live there, but she built it for them and then paid to have... This is in the Ozarks in the 1920s. Paid to have plumbing and electricity installed. Like, she really... Her daughter was so successful and also a hack as somebody pointed out to us she was like a, she's like a successful yellow journalist hack um so these books are very much uh, a result of their involvement their very codependent dysfunctional involvement with each other <laughs> but um we just got off track so this is what happens when you talk about rose she just like sucks all the air out of the room and you're just like oh my god Rose. Her spirit is with us. Her libertarian spirit. Her libertarian. Um, (laughs) Annie and I are just going like, give us more tea. This is terrific. I'll give you, here's the best. It's not the best, but there's a lot. I mean, she really funded a school that educated the Koch brothers. Like she's very tied into, she left the entire Little House copyright to a man. She didn't have any children. So she like adult adopted this guy who got all of Little House copyright and then ran for president under the Libertarian ticket in 1976 on essentially Little House money. There's a lot, like you really cannot not peel back the layers on this, but um, Rose, when Laura sold Little House in the Big Woods, which Rose helped her with, behind Laura's back, Rose took Laura's story 
and secretly turned it into a novel for grown-ups, which she sold to the Saturday Evening Post without telling Laura, which published at almost the same time as Little House in the Big Woods, which Laura discovered when someone brought over the illustrations for it uh, as it was publishing. Like, that's the degree of crazy that is happening behind the scenes in Little House. Wow. Yeah, it is. All right. It's, <laughs> which again, I think emphasizes like Laura's ability to turn this into a cozy, magical story when behind the scenes, it was just Rose invested all of their money in the stock market. And when it crashed, they lost all of it. And that's one of the reasons Laura sat down to write what became Little House in the Big Woods, because then Rose had a mental breakdown and was like, Rose was also, though, in the 20s in Paris with all the, the you know, that that whole movement of writers and like. As Joe and I like to say, she once attended an orgy and we're like, I hope she participated in this orgy. Like, let's hope that Rose was having some fun. But like, there's a whole bunch of crazy that's happening. But- and, and, and and like true mental illness. Like, so like much truly, mental illness. Truly the, the records of her journals is she was definitely some, yeah. form, some form of manic She depressive. really benefited from therapy to a degree that is like hard to quantify. But... I I bring that up because when we talk about the racism that's happening in Little House on the Prairie and in in any number of the books, those books, the Ingalls family is situated in those books as being like completely alone in this vast landscape with no one around them, which is very far from the truth. There was a lot of people there. There was a lot of... um, African-American farmers, African-American doctor who's in the book, but was actually hugely successful. They were on the Osage Diminished Reserve. And that last scene in Little House in the Prairie where the trail of Native Americans are leaving and Laura's like coveting a baby Native American. She's like, I want a papoose. That the Those are the Osage Indian tribe who are going to uh, Oklahoma who get the land that they get in Oklahoma, the reservation, and they own the land rights and they hit oil which mm-hmm. is the new Scorsese movie that's coming out about yeah. the Osage murders, is that these Native Americans, the Osage tribe, then become some of the wealthiest people in America, and then the white population tries to marry in and starts murdering them to get land rights. And some yeah. major ranches in Oklahoma are the direct result of this. So there's a lot of... There's also... Laura never writes about the Dakota-U.S. War, which happened in 1862 or three. Right before she was born. Right before she was born, which resulted in the largest mass hanging in American history and had provided America with the narrative of bloodthirsty Indian uh, and vulnerable white settler, which is not borne out in any real reality, but was very Mm -hmm. much how the media capitalized on it. And so some of Ma's behavior of vulnerability in these places is coming from the narrative that's been fed to them. And then Mm -hmm. also there's that chapter in Little House on the Prairie called Indians in the House, where the Osage Indians come in and start taking food. But of course, they've made treaties. The treaties haven't been fulfilled. They're starving. They see people on their land as having taken their resources that belong to them. None of this is at all even insinuated in the books. And so I think one of the things we try and do in the podcast is pull back the lens and say, what else was happening outside of this story that you're seeing the result of without any explanation? Yeah, without any further context outside no of this, context. this 11-year-old girl and her very yes. personal take on it. Yeah. yeah, which it doesn't necessarily undermine her take. You know, I think... Something that a lot of people point out, and it's a valid point, is Laura's not saying 
Laura's reflecting what she's hearing. She's not saying these things. She's, and as a kid, I recognized like Ma has problematic views, and of course, Pa's the white, magical, possibly manic, mentally disturbed <laughs> hero who drags them around. Yeah. But like, she's worth like you can love a parent those problematic views, which like welcome to everyone's Thanksgiving table, but <laughs> like, but. Left out of that is any context. And I think as a kid, you recognize that she's repeating stuff she's heard. But at the same time, um, a scholar, Dr. Debbie Reese, who has written about this extensively, says, you know, should these books be being taught? Should a Native American child in a classroom have to listen to this language? And I think she's right in that they shouldn't. And the manner in which these books are introduced is something we is really the conversation. Like, how do you hand them to children? I, would you give them to children in your life? And if so, because I've given them to plenty of children, like in what context and with what sort of support system do they now come with? Yeah. yeah. And and if you so decide to not give uh, your kids these these books or any kids these books, um, Debbie Reese also has a, a blog called American Indians in Children's Literature where she basically rates all these different books and Little House you might expect scores some of the lowest of um, whether the depictions of Native Americans in those books are are appropriate or just just positive depictions at all, and will recommend the books coming out now that do have really great depictions of of Native life. Um, and so, if you're looking for alternative books to give kids, um, that's a really good resource. Oh, that's super cool. I'm, I mean, so I'm glad that people are finally doing the food work. topic. <laughs> 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 oh no, it's I mean it genuinely is all tied in. I mean, you know, like mm-hmm. like when you're when you're talking, I mean, cuz all 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 of these issues were tied into foodways and yes. so yeah. and 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 into the foodways that would come out of the, of this time when you were talking about the dust bowl and all of that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they gave away the stewardship of the land from people who cared about it to people who just wanted their heck in 60 acres, you know, mm-hmm. like of mm-hmm. course you're going to of course you're going to get a dust bowl like that. One of the smartest things that was said to us was by an environmental historian who said, we're talking about white, violent white supremacist systems and people with very few resources trying to survive within them. And that both of these things are true at the same time, that you had the, the people to whom free land was sold to, not in literal fact, but as like a, as like a marketing campaign were extremely poor, uh, had very few options, and this was their option. And it is also, of course, obviously true that the the system that they are being invited into is a white supremacist violent system that has eradicated an entire population of people in order to make this possible. And so understanding both these those things at the same time I think is not, to put it mildly, how we're taught American history, but is is also true. You know, like that's, yeah. it's not, everyone was starving. Well, people who on the railroad weren't and the government wasn't. But, and this idea too of, I mean, we talked about this, I'm losing track of what's our actual podcast now. But, uh, <laughs> this whole idea of like the self, I think Little House and so much of this ties into the food and the food descriptions is, the Ingles are self-sufficient and they live off the land and they get no support. And in reality, they got plenty of government support. 
Everyone needed it. There was huge grasshopper plagues for the entire 70s that wiped out, like, whatever the measurements was like, it wiped out entire states. Like, you can't even conceive of these weaves, clouds of grasshoppers that were hundreds of thousands of miles wide that wiped everything out. But more than that, the biggest government support they got was the absolute eradication of Native Americans. That is a government support. That's That's support to your lifestyle to make this land available to you and understanding the connection of those two things, I think, is incredible. It was very powerful to me and I think really necessary when you're coming to these stories that to understand the framework of what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. And, and I mean, and those those histories haven't been told um, for most for I mean I I feel like it's really recent that we're starting to hear anything approaching the actual truth to these stories to mm-hmm. how many times the Osage were kicked out of different territories whenever anyone realized that the land that they were on was something that they wanted again. I mean I think we don't realize how much Little House sucks up the history like because she decided to sit down and write her life story in a very like we need money and I loved my father and I want to have some record of my childhood. And that could have been like how much we're asking Laura Ingalls Wilder to shoulder in terms of our historical understanding of an entire country feels a bit outsized, but also (laughs) why are we allowing her to shoulder so much? Right. There's an appeal to the story she's giving us that is obliterating all these other narratives because this is a nicer story. Mm -hmm. And it has, like, pig splatters and, like, <laughs> maple candy in the snow. And, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's a nice story. And also grass. Can you imagine clouds of grasshoppers descending for months at a time and literally eating everything? Like, you'd lose your mind. I can't even handle a cockroach in the apartment. I just think, like. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, if Netflix is down, I'm real upset. So, like, I, I can't. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing. They there's there the poverty de- definitely comes through in the books, but you also realize again as an adult that she was downplaying that she was upping the food and like the small moments in her life where they were able to have this delicious meal, and downplaying the months and months that they were starving, and yeah, there's uh, it just speaks to her like her sense her sensory details are just like doing so much of the lift, heavy lifting in this entire series again to just wrap it all in a pretty bow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her sensory details—that's a great way to put it. Yeah, uh, Annie, do you do you, how how are you, feeling? Annie? Your how, face through all of this what? has been amazing. <laughs> I wish that we could have like an audio of your face because every once in a while you're like, oh my god, what are we talking? about? This is crazy. <laughs> Her daughter it's did been a lot of ride for me. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> I love it. Uh I feel I feel like we're going long, but I did have I was formulating questions as again someone who has like no experience with this. I've had experience with similar things. Um, when I was trying to sleep last night. And as I, I've been listening, I feel like I'm, I'm picking up threads on it. But it was, it's a vague and messy question. So please bear with me. But I feel like a lot of things like this, because we've talked about things like this, Lauren, and other fictional pieces where there's this description of food. And the food is so, in heavy quotes, basic. 
Um, like, but it sounds like the best thing you've ever had. Uh, and it usually is in these times of uh, deprivation or you can't get a hold on this food. You, you're So it tastes like the best thing you've ever had. But as we've been talking through this and what I was thinking about last night was sort of how much of how much of this particular story feels like either and um, <laughs> the like kind of manifest destiny of America, like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You should be proud like you can survive off this little good for you. Plus, like. This idea that we've gotten away from in our modern sense this is a very modern take but we've gotten away from these quote simple foods again like it it so this is sort of one of the reasons it resonates is that oh i go to the grocery store and i get this thing and i have no connection to it there's no connection to me and i eat it and i don't really care about it and i don't really think about it do you think those things are at play at all? Am I just like reaching wildly for something that's no, not there? No, definitely. <laughs> I think the reason we all talk about the pig's bladder is because right before she gets the pig's bladder, she has to listen to the pig squeal as it's being slaughtered. Like <laughs> this is there's a very real direct thread in Little House between the source of the food. Like one of the biggest fights she and Mary has is when Paul goes out hunting. And they're fighting over what dressing the goose will get when he returns. Like, there's a very clear line between their survival and Pa's ability to hunt, really. And and a lot of salting of venison happens in Little House, which always so sounds delicious to me. They're always <laughs> salting the venison. They're like, yeah. she describes <laughs> that they're... So I think, I think there's an appeal to that. And I think, I mean... I'm not a, the cook here <laughs> at all. Uh, but the amount of people who said to us that they had learned to to can or to preserve or they wanted to know how all these things. And I think even this sort of um, live from the land through line, there's a simplicity, simplicity to it that is appealing. Like uh, there's a purity to it, which I don't actually think is necessarily true in their real lived existence and I don't know how if it was if anybody could really survive individually off the land in real life but there's a real appeal to the idea that you could that you know where everything you've done this the self-sufficiency like this I this American idea of self-sufficiency that I don't think really exists in other narratives of countries of themselves right like the no. America really loves the idea of like yeah. And doing so much with so little, you know, to the extent of you're a homesteader, you're going out where there's absolutely nothing. And that's and that means everything to you. That piece of land means everything to you. And you're going to get everything you can out of it. And even that again, that opening um, scene of of slaughtering the pig and getting the pig splatter and the tail and um, almost bragging about how they were able to use every part and have so much fun. And chalking that up to their pioneer ways where back to Native American traditions, like that is all like that when you learn about, yeah, Native American customs and and the traditions around the buffalo hunt, like they are not praised in the same way that this little pioneer family is for like slaughtering their one pig a year. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely it's was practical. Obviously, they had to do that to they had to use everything that they had 
to survive and make it last as long as they could. But I definitely agree that it is in these books depicted as a very American, like, new way of life. It's like, romanticized, too. It's really like the um, – it's in Little House and Big Woods particularly, but it's really framed as a bit of a fairy tale, and there's a romance to it. And I can't emphasize strongly enough that Rose – we're back to Rose <laughs> – has been she along with Ayn Rand called the mother of the libertarian party and that these books are fused with Rose's libertarian fantasy which the only reason it didn't go completely off the rails is because Laura was like I'm not putting that in this book about the long winter which we barely survived Rose wanted to include a serial killer like a fictional serial killer interaction in Little House in the Prairie like really so once you really understand the source of some of this I think it mitigates a bit of that self-sufficient fantasy at the same time it does sound appealing because so much of our food is is disconnected from our from life. Like so much of our food is disconnected from its source. It's disconnected from life. It's disconnected from, and and we're seeing the. I mean, we're living in New York three days ago. We couldn't see the skyline because of the smoke. Like we're really we are living in in real ramifications of all these decisions. And there is something deeply appealing about this fantasy of sustainability. And pure living. And, of course, the truth at the time was they were in an environmental crisis, too. You know, those droughts were not mystical. They were man-made in some cases. And so, again, there's a reason we're still talking about these books because we're reliving versions of them in some degree or other. Uh, But, yeah, I don't know. It seems nice. My father worked in a – my father was in the management side of Canada's largest meat packing company when I was a kid, and I used to beg him to come in and see the animals get slaughtered because I was so consumed with Little House. And he was like, you have and to you, – And you say you didn't like the food in, this, in these books? I know. It's so funny. I was like, well, they're slaughtered. How do, how do you slaughter the pigs, Dad? Like, what's happening in this meat? And he was like, you have to be 13. Like, he didn't even say, wow, it's weird that my like, eight-year-old daughter wants to come see a metal bolt put through this animal's oh head. It was just like, you're not allowed – he never brought you back a pig's bladder? He never brought How me back rude. a pig's bladder. But, man, I'm a meat eater, so. I mean, guys, thank you for this. I know this conversation is long and windy, but I do think it is reflective of the subject matter, which is like it. it is like you really pull one thread and next thing you know, you're in a, like the 1976 libertarian ticket for president. Like it's just it's just it's so all over the place. And. The fact that so much chaos and mental illness and violence and racism and and poverty has resulted in these books, which on the one hand, I think have some truths of familial love. And on the other hand, are just, you know, this very comforting tale is fascinating. Yeah. Like we always say, you never know where the research will take you. You never know. It's like Laura's decision to sit down and write about the meals her family had together because so much of it is about food is like Mm -hmm. resulted in in this it's 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 really intense to think about and it's making me hungry yeah yeah (laughs) it's about that time (laughs) yeah weirdly it's making me hungry for sushi though which laura never had (laughs) (laughs) she knew elvis but she didn't eat sushi never i don't know laura ever sushi she had a big fat Japanese fan base, but uh, did, yeah, because yeah, of propaganda, because right, Douglas right. MacArthur 
Well, you'd be, put that in the first episode, right? I've lost mm-hmm. track. Sorry, yeah, you guys. Did. Uh, <laughs> maybe Laura had sushi. We're unable to answer in the, <laughs> in the right. podcast yeah. is, did Laura Ingalls eat sushi? <laughs> You'll get to the bottom of it. I think so. That'll Mis- be our bonus episode. Of history, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that brings us to the end of this semi-fictional foods uh-huh. about Little House and our, our wonderful interview that we got to do. I learned so much, Lauren. <laughs> I'm a changed woman. <laughs> we we all did. I this was oh heck. I yeah. I love I love how angry I am right now. Uh it's really <laughs> it, I just just how how fascinating, how weird that something that I just had this really innate love for as a child is so much deeper. So much goes so much deeper than I ever imagined it could. Yes. It really 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 does. Um but it was really fun. It was fun to learn about. Um, I'm excited to share this with everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you can um, check out Wilder yeah. wherever you find podcasts mm-hmm. um, for way more. Uh, oh, so much <laughs> information. more. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you should. Um, in the meantime, no listener mail on this one because it was quite a long interview. <laughs> A wonderful one, but yeah, <laughs> this episode could get two hours long easily. So hmm. we are, we'll be back with it in our next episode. Uh, but if you do have uh, anything you want to send us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. And we are also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard, with special thanks today to Charles DeMontebello for recording up in New York. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free 